Chapter 7 Mythology The Age of Fable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. L. Cohen. Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 7 Proserpine, Glaucus, and Scylla. When Jupiter and his brothers had defeated the Titans and banished them to Tartarus, a new enemy rose up against the gods. They were the giants Typhon, Briarius, Enceladus, and others. Some of them had a hundred arms, others breathed out fire. They were finally subdued and buried alive under Mount Etna, where they still sometimes struggle to get loose and shake the whole island with earthquakes. Their breath comes up through the mountain and is what men call the eruption of the volcano. The fall of these monsters shook the earth, so that Pluto was alarmed and feared that his kingdom would be laid open to the light of day. Under this apprehension, he mounted his chariot drawn by black horses and took a circuit of inspection to satisfy himself of the extent of the damage. While he was thus engaged, Venus, who was sitting on Mount Eryx playing with her boy Cupid, espied him and said, my son, take your darts with which you conquer all, even Jove himself, and send one into the breast of yonder dark monarch who rules the realm of Tartarus. Why should he alone escape? Seize the opportunity to extend your empire and mine. Do you not see that even in heaven some despise our power? Minerva the wise, Diana the huntress, defy us, and there is that daughter of Ceres who threatens to follow their example. Now do you, if you have any regard for your own interest or mine, Join these two in one. The boy unbound his quiver and selected his sharpest and truest arrow. Then straining the bow against his knee, he attached a string and, having made ready, shot the arrow with his barbed point right into the heart of Pluto. In the Vale of Enna there is a lake embowered in the woods, which screen it from the fervid rays of the sun while the moist ground is covered with flowers and spring reigns perpetual. Here Proserpine was playing with her companions, gathering lilies and violets and filling her basket and her apron with them, when Pluto saw her, loved her, and carried her off. She screamed for help to her mother and companions, and when in her fright she dropped the corners of her apron and let the flowers fall, childlike she felt the loss of them as an addition to her grief. The ravisher urged on his steeds, calling them each by name, and throwing loose over their heads and necks his iron-colored reins. When he reached the river Cyan, and it opposed his passage, he struck the river bank with his trident, and the earth opened, and gave him passage to Tartarus. Ceres sought her daughter all the world over. Bright-haired Aurora, when she came forth in the morning, and Hesperus, when he let out the stars in the evening, found her still busy in the search. But it was all unavailing. At length, weary and sad, she sat down upon a stone, and continued sitting nine days and nights in the open air, under the sunlight and moonlight and falling showers. It was where now stands the city of Eleusis, then the home of an old man named Celius. He was out in the field gathering acorns and blackberries and sticks for his fire. His little girl was driving home their two goats, and as she passed the goddess, who appeared in the guise of an old woman, she said to her, Mother, 
and the name was sweet to the ears of Cirrus. Why do you sit here alone upon the rocks? The old man also stopped, though his load was heavy, and begged her to come into his cottage such as it was. She declined, and he urged her. Go in peace, she replied, and be happy in your daughter. I have lost mine. As she spoke, tears, or something like tears, for the gods never weep, fell down her cheeks upon her bosom. The compassionate old man and his child wept with her. Then said he, Come with us, and despise not our humble roof, so may your daughter be restored to you safely. Lead on, said she, I cannot resist that appeal. So she rose from the stone and went with them. As they walked, he told her that his only son, a little boy, lay very sick, feverish, and sleepless. She stooped and gathered some poppies. As they entered the cottage, they found all in great distress, for the boy seemed past hope of recovery. Metanira, his mother, received her kindly, and the goddess stooped and kissed the lips of the sick child. Instantly the paleness left his face, and healthy vigor returned to his body. The whole family was delighted, that is, the father, mother, and little girl, for they were all, they had no servants. They spread the table, and put upon it curds and cream, apples, honey, and the comb. When they ate, Ceres mingled poppy juice in the milk of the boy. When night came, and all was still, she arose, and taking the sleeping boy, molded his limbs with her hands, and uttered over him three times a solemn charm that went and laid him in the ashes. His mother, who had been watching what her guest was doing, sprang forward with a cry and snatched the child from the fire. Then Ceres assumed her own form, and a divine splendor shone all around. While they were overcome with astonishment, she said, Mother, you have been cruel in your fineness to your son. I would have made him immortal, but you have frustrated my attempt. Nevertheless, he shall be great and useful. He shall teach men the use of the plough and the rewards which labor can win from the cultivated soil. So saying, she wrapped a cloud about her, and mounting her chariot, rode away. Ceres continued to search for her daughter, passing from land to land and across seas and rivers, till at length she returned to Sicily, whence she first set out, and stood by the banks of the river Cyan, where Pluto made himself a passage with his prize to his own dominions. The river-nymph would have told the goddess all she had witnessed, but dared not, for fear of Pluto, so she only ventured to take up the girdle which Proserpine had dropped in her flight, and wafted to the feet of the mother. Ceres, seeing this, was no longer in doubt of her loss, but she did not yet know the cause and lay the blame on the innocent land. Ungrateful soil, said she, which I have endowed with fertility, and clothed with herbage and nourishing grain, no more shall you enjoy my favors. Then cattle died, the plough broke in the furrow, the seed failed to come up, there was too much sun, there was too much rain, the birds stole the seeds, thistles and brambles were the only growth. Seeing this, the fountain Arethusa interceded for the land. Goddess, she said, blame not the land. It opened unwillingly to yield the passage to your daughter. I can tell you of her fate, for I have seen her. This is not my native country. I come hither from Ellis. I was a woodland nymph, and delighted in the chase. They praised my beauty, but I cared nothing for it, and rather boasted of my hunting exploits. 
One day I was returning from the wood, heated with exercise, when I came to a stream silently flowing, so clear that you might count the pebbles on the bottom. The willow shaded it, and the grassy bank sloped down to the water's edge. I approached. I touched the water with my foot, I stepped in knee-deep, and not content with that, I laid my garments on the willows and went in. While I sported in the water, I heard an indistinct murmur coming up, as out of the depths of the stream, and made haste to escape to the nearest bank. The voice said, Why do you fly, Arethusa? I am Alpheus, the god of this stream. I ran, he pursued. He was not more swift than I, but he was stronger, and gained upon me as my strength failed. At last, exhausted, I cried for help to Diana. Help me, goddess! Help your votary! The goddess heard and wrapped me suddenly in a thick cloud. The river god looked now this way and now that, and twice came close to me, but could not find me. Arethusa! Arethusa! he cried. Oh, how I trembled, like a lamb that hears the wolf growling outside the fold. A cold sweat came over me, my hair flowed down in streams. Where my foot stood there was a pool. In short, in less time than it takes to tell it, I became a fountain. But in this form Alpheus knew me and attempted to mingle his stream with mine. Diana cleft the ground, and I, endeavoring to escape him, plunged into the cavern, and through the bowels of the earth and came out here in Sicily. While I passed through the lower parts of the earth, I saw your proserpine. She was sad, but no longer showing alarm in her countenance. Her look was such as became a queen, the queen of Erebus, the powerful bride of the monarch of the realms of the dead. When Sirius heard this, she stood for a while like one stupefied, then turned her chariot towards heaven, and hastened to present herself before the throne of Jove. She told the story of her bereavement, and implored Jupiter to interfere to procure the restitution of her daughter. Jupiter consented on one condition, namely, that Proserpine should not during her stay in the lower world have taken any food. Otherwise, the fates forbade her release. Accordingly, Mercury was sent, accompanied by Spring, to demand Proserpine of Pluto. The wily monarch consented, but alas, the maiden had taken a pomegranate, which Pluto offered her, and had sucked the sweet pulp from a few of the seeds. This was enough to prevent her complete release, but a compromise was made by which she was to pass half the time with her mother, and the rest with her husband Pluto. Ceres allowed herself to be pacified with this arrangement and restored the earth to her favor. Now she remembered Celius and his family, and her promise to his infant son Trepitolemus. When the boy grew up, she taught him to use of the plough, and how to sow the seed. She took him in her chariot, drawn by winged dragons, through all of the countries of the earth, imparting to mankind valuable grains and the knowledge of agriculture. After his return, Triptolemus built a magnificent temple to Ceres in Eleusis, and established a worship of the goddess under the name of the Eleusian Mysteries, which, in the splendor and solemnity of their observance, surpassed all other religious celebrations among the Greeks. There can be little doubt of the story of Ceres and Proserpine being an allegory. Proserpine signifies the seed-corn, which, when cast into the ground, lies there concealed, that is, she is carried off by the god of the underworld. It reappears, that is, Proserpine is restored to her mother. Spring leads her back to the light of day. 
Milton alludes to the story of Proserpine in Paradise Lost, Book 4. Not that far field of Enna, where Proserpine gathering flowers, herself a fairer flower by gloomy dis was gathered, which cost Ceres all that pain to seek her through the world, might with this paradise of Eden strive. Hood, in his Ode to Melancholy, uses the same allusion very beautifully. Forgive, if some while I forget, in woe to come the present bliss, as frighted Proserpine let fall her flowers at the sight of Dis. The river Alpheus does in fact disappear underground in part of its course, finding its way through subterranean channels till it again appears on the surface. It was said that Cilian fountain Arethusa was the same stream, which, after passing under the sea, came up again in Sicily. Hence the story ran that a cup thrown into the Alpheus appeared again in Arethusa. It is this fable of the underground course of Alpheus that Coleridge alludes to in his poem of Kublai Khan. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure-dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. In one of Moore's juvenile poems, he thus alludes to the same story, and to the practice of throwing garlands or other light objects on a stream to be carried downward by it, and afterwards reproduced at its emerging. O my beloved, how divinely sweet is the pure joy when kindred spirits meet! Like him, the river god whose waters flow with love their only light through caves below, wafting in triumph all the flowery braids and festal rings with which Olympic maids have decked his current as an offering meet to lay at Arethusa's shining feet. Think, when he meets at last his fountain bride, what perfect love must thrill the blended tide, each lost in each, till mingling into one, their lot the same for shadow or for sun, a type of true love to the deep they run. The following extract from Moore's Rhymes on the Road gives an account of a celebrated picture by Albano at Milan called A Dance of Loves. Tis for the theft if Enna's flower from earth, these urchins celebrate their dance of mirth, round the green tree like fays upon a heath, those that are nearest linked in order bright, cheek after cheek like rosebud in a wreath, and those more distant showing from beneath the others' wings their little eyes of light, while see, among the clouds their eldest brother, but just flown up, tells with a smile of bliss this plank of Pluto to his charmed mother, who turns to greet the tidings with a kiss. Glaucus and Scylla Glaucus was a fisherman. One day he had drawn his nets to land and had taken a great many fishes of various kinds, so he emptied his net and proceeded to sort the fishes on the grass. The place where he stood was a beautiful island in the river, a solitary spot, uninhabited, and not used for pastures for cattle, nor ever visited by any but himself. On a sudden the fishes which had been laid on the grass began to revive, and moved their fins as if they were in the water, and while he looked on astonished, they one and all moved off to the water, plunged in, and swam away. He did not know what to make of this, whether some god had done it or some secret power in the herbage. What herb has such power, he exclaimed, and gathered some of it. He tasted it. Scarce had the juices of the plant reached his palate when he found himself agitated with a longing desire for the water. 
He could no longer restrain himself, but bidding farewell to earth, he plunged into the stream. The gods of the water received him graciously, and admitted him to the honor of their society. They obtained the consent of Oceanus and Tethys, the sovereigns of the sea, that all that was mortal in him should be washed away. A hundred rivers poured their waters over him, then he lost all sense of his former nature and all consciousness. When he recovered, he found himself changed in form and mind. His hair was sea-green and trailed behind him on the water. His shoulders grew broad, and what had been thighs and legs assumed the form of a fish's tail. The sea-gods complimented him on the change of his appearance, and he fancied himself rather a good-looking personage. One day Glaucus saw the beautiful maiden Scylla, the favorite of the water-nymphs, rambling on the shore, and when she had found a sheltered nook, lobbing her limbs in the clear water. He fell in love with her, and showing himself on the surface spoke to her, saying such things as he thought most likely to win her to stay. For she turned to run immediately on the sight of him, and ran till she had gained a cliff overlooking the sea. Here she stopped and turned round to see whether it were a god or sea animal, and observed with wonder his shape and color. Glaucus, partly emerging from the water, and supporting himself against a rock, said, Maiden, I am no monster, nor a sea animal, but a god, and neither Proteus nor Triton ranks higher than I. Once I was a mortal, and followed the sea for a living, but now I belong wholly to it. Then he told the story of his metamorphosis, and how he had been promoted to his present dignity, and added, But what avails all this if it fails to move your heart? He was going on in his strain, but Scylla turned and hastened away. Glaucus was in despair, but it occurred to him to consult the enchantress Circe. Accordingly, he repaired to her island, the same where afterwards Ulysses landed, as we shall see in one of our later stories. After mutual salutations, he said, Goddess, I entreat your pity. You alone can relieve the pain I suffer. The power of herbs I know as well as anyone, for it is to them I owe my change of form. I love Scylla. I am ashamed to tell you how I have sued and promised to her, and how scornfully she has treated me. I beseech you to use your incantations, or potent herbs if they are more prevailing, not to cure me of my love, for that I do not wish, but to make her share it and yield me a like return. To which Circe replied, for she was not insensible to the attractions of the sea-green deity. You'd better pursue a willing object. You are worthy to be sought, instead of having to seek in vain. Be not diffident. Know your own worth. I protest to you that even I, goddess though I be, and learned in the virtues of plants and spells, should not know how to refuse you. If she scorns you, scorn her. Meet one who is ready to meet you the halfway, and thus make a due return to both at once. To these words Glaucus replied, Sooner shall trees grow at the bottom of the ocean, and seaweed on top of the mountains, than I will cease to love Scylla, and her alone. The goddess was indignant, but she could not punish him, neither did she wish to do so, for she liked him too well. So she turned all her wrath against her rival, poor Scylla. She took plants of poisonous powers and mixed them together with incantations and charms. Then she passed through the cloud of gambling beasts, the victims of her art, and proceeded to the coast of Sicily where Scylla lived. 
There was a little bay on the shore to which Scylla used to resort, in the heat of the day, to breathe the air of the sea and to bathe in its waters. Here the goddess poured her poisonous mixture and muttered over it incantations of mighty power. Scylla came as usual and plunged into the water up to her waist. What was her horror to perceive a brood of serpents and barking monsters surrounding her? At first she could not imagine they were part of herself and tried to run from them and to drive them away, but as she ran she carried them with her, and when she tried to touch her limbs she found her hands touched only the yawning jaws of monsters. Scylla remained rooted to the spot. Her temper grew as ugly as her form, and she took pleasure in devouring the hapless mariners who came within her grasp. Thus she destroyed six of the companions of Ulysses, and tried to wreck the ship of Aeneas, till at last she was turned into a rock, and as such still continues to be a terror to mariners. Keats, in his Endymion, has given a new version of the ending of Glaucus and Scylla. Glaucus consents to Circe's blandishments till he, by chance, is witness to her transaction with her beast. Disgusted with her treachery and cruelty, he tries to escape from her, but is taken and brought back when, with reproaches, she banishes him, sentencing him to pass a thousand years in decrepitude and pain. He returns to the sea, and there finds the body of Scylla, whom the goddess has not transformed, but drowned. Glaucus learns that his destiny is that, if he passes his thousand years in collecting all the bodies of drowned lovers, a youth beloved of the gods will appear and help him. Endymion fulfills this prophecy and aids in restoring Glaucus to youth, and Scylla and all the drowned lovers to life. The following is Glaucus's account of his feelings after his sea change. I plunged for life or death. To internet, one senses with so dense a breathing stuff might seem a work of pain, so not enough can I admire how crystal smooth it felt and buoyant round my limbs. At first I dwelt whole days and days in sheer astonishment, forgetful utterly of self-intent, moving but with the mighty ebb and flow. Then, like a new-fledged bird that first does show his spreaded feathers to the morrow chill, I tried and feared the pinions of my will. T'was freedom, and at once I visited the ceaseless wonders of this ocean bed. Keats End of Chapter 7